our Lord from whom all blessings flow. This is a day of great blessing for the gifts you've given to us, but most of all for you and for all that you are. We are astounded, O oh Lord, at your infinite, infiniteness, your eternity, your holiness, your love, your steadfast love toward us, especially when we realize who we are and how how far we fall short of your glory, even as your children. And yet, you are like a mother who watches and hovers over us and takes care of us and spurs us on to do that which is right and true. Father, we pray that as we open the word you have given to us, that you may indeed allow your spirit to instruct us, to guide us, to see within that word, that which we need for ourselves this morning, and that you may provide for us out of the beauty of who you are, beauty for who we are, to your honor, to your glory. Therefore, may the meditations of my mouth and of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people said, amen. Well, happy Mother's Day to all those who have mothers. <laughs> Mine happened to die about 14 years ago, but today we still remember our mothers. Peg is on a trip down to North Carolina, made at the last minute, like Friday night, to go visit her mother and surprise her yesterday. And so it's a, it's a great weekend for them to be together. Let us stand for the reading of God's Word. We have two passages here. The first one from Deuteronomy, Moses' book, before he would finish his ministry, as he is giving the instructions before they enter the land, as to how then to live when they enter the land. And you may know that this is comparable to Exodus, but Exodus was after the Passover, after the, their salvation, and this is how they were then to live within the wilderness. And if you read Exodus 20, this commandment, you see this a little bit different than the one in Deuteronomy 5. But let's hear the word of God. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And then from Mark's Gospel, the 10th chapter. And you could also look at this from Matthew's Gospel, in the 19th chapter. And... As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, 
Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And we'll end with a reading of God's word there to understand this is God's word, not only to us, but to all. And it is his infallible, inerrant word. And you may be seated. We are going to finish the Ten Commandments in the sense of our studying of them and our exposition of them, although that we uh, never finish with the Ten Commandments because they are given to us to exemplify and tell us how we, then we shall live. And so on Lord's Day 44 in your book, which is still available for $5, and there's one in there I think that's one for four fifty because it's slightly used. If you do not have it, right? It's, it's still in there? It looks like it got bent? Okay. <laughs> Question 113. What does the Tenth Commandment require? That not even the least inclination or thought against any commandment of God ever enter our heart, but that with our whole heart we continually hate all sin and take pleasure in all righteousness. That is, we are called not to covet. Rather, as the title of this outline is, we are called to have contentment in our life. This is a, uh, a passage which we're going to use to look at several passages from Scripture because it's amazing how much Scripture has to do with coveting. And the more I thought about it and studied for this week, the more I said, man, I have to leave out a whole bunch of passages. So we're only going to take a look at several of them. Let's take a look as we've done with all the other ones. First of all, with the portrait of God from the commandment. And the portrait of God is you have a very contented God. He is a God who is perfectly content with all things. Why? Because everything, every iota, every atom, everything is working out according to his plan. He doesn't wake up in the morning and go, man, I didn't see that coming. Or, wow, what's going on? From all eternity... He has planned and he is now exercising perfectly the plan that he has brought out. Not only in a macro wave, but also in the micro wave. And so Romans 8.28, we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything, good and bad, are working together for his glory through us. It's not the it's you know it's not the picture of one who's sitting up in heaven and wringing his hands and wondering whoa what's going to happen, which is a popular conception in our day and age. We call it progressive theology that God is only acting in accordance with reacting to what human beings are doing. He doesn't know what's taking place and he's not too sure where it's going to go. And that is even within the evangelical community. No, God is perfectly content. In essence, he could say this is the best of all possible worlds. And we look around the evil and say, how can you say that? Because it's going exactly the way he planned. And if he thought it could go better than this, 
it, he would have planned it better than this. It's happening that way. i give you the passage of Job, and if you look at uh, verse 13, he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence when I consider I, I am in dread of him. Yeah, wouldn't you be in dread of somebody who's running this whole universe exactly the way he wants? I mean, we try to run businesses, and they don't work the way we want for a variety of reasons. But it's happening. I gave you some other passages, especially because Ascension Day or Sunday is coming up on us pretty soon. It's the least celebrated of the major holidays, although we should remember that the reason why things are happening the way things are is because Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. As we confess every Sunday in the Nicene Creed. So Acts 2 says to the kings, kiss the son, humble yourself before him. Why? Because he's the ruler. Or Revelation 5 is the lion who is a lamb who rules everything in the world. Or as you have um, in Mark, a passage I didn't read, Mark 29 to 31, where Jesus, in response to some other questions, says, I tell you, I, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. It's all working out. We like the idea, and it's common, that man, if I follow Jesus, I will have a hundredfold of all the things I want. And then we forget that one phrase, with persecutions, with trial and travail. Those, how, those are the ways in which things come. But God is perfectly content, and that is how we are called to be. We are called to be people who are content with where we are, what we have, and in essence of saying, what's going on? Uh, our world does not allow us to be that way. It pushes us to be discontented. But this commandment tells us we are not to be discontented. We are not to covet so you get into the prohibition of the Tenth Commandment. Heidelberg Catechism says that not even the least inclination or thought against any commandment of God ever enter our heart or the core of who we are. Should not even enter the heart. But as we're going to see, especially with the Apostle Paul, it dwells there. And therefore we are always in the temp always battling that temptation to covet. Calvin, John Calvin put it this way, no thought should steal upon us so to move us to covet to our neighbor's loss. And remember how Moses said to De in Deuteronomy, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And there's two words to consider that. The one is a word covet, 
which means to long, to lust after, to have a great desire for. And I've, sometimes in my reading, there were people who said, well, this is pretty much like the commandment that you shall not commit adultery, except I don't think, I don't think it is. I think what he's saying is, when you go over to your neighbor's house and they have all the good furniture and good china and they have everything put together and you look and think about your own little shack down the road, don't covet their house. When you think about somebody else's wife, you say, man, if I were married to her, my marriage would be a whole lot better. That's coveting the person, not lusting after her, but coveting her. Man, if, if my children only acted like so-and-so's children, oh, how pleasing life would be. And the moms are saying that today. Man, don't you, grow up. <laughs> Come on. Can't you be like Jane's kids? No, that's coveting. It's, it's a lusting after something that you do not have. Or desire which means to delight, as if it were a delectable thing. This is brought home to me a, a long time ago, but I was at a funeral for a, a friend's father. And we finished a funeral, and we went to the graveside. And I pulled up with a couple of my kids in this old car, a Dodge Caravan that had a few nicks and necks, and it really, it had a lot of empty McDonald's wrappers in it. <laughs> And the pastor who's doing the funeral pulls up in this fire engine red Corvette. Vroom, vroom, vroom. And I, I turn to Peg and I go, I'm in the wrong denomination. I'm in a five buck denomination and he's in a hundred buck denomination. That's all there is to it. Coveting. And then I realize, well, I don't want a Corvette. I mean, you spend all your time fixing them, fine tuning them. Like a friend in college who had a Porsche. And he spent every weekend trying to make sure the thing went. And I'm going, I don't want a car like that. Give me a car that will get me from point A to point B without having to stop at point C. My, my garage. My dealer. So, that's what coveting is all about. It's to have envy of anybody's, anything else that somebody has. Because basically what you're saying is, God, you're not fair. You haven't given me enough. You haven't given me things that are good enough. You're, you haven't given things that satisfy me. And you begin to sound just like a little child. If you loved me, you wouldn't have given me this. You would give me that. And, you know, no mother likes to hear that. No father likes to hear that. And our Heavenly Father doesn't like to hear it. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from our discontent. That we are not satisfied with what God in His infinite, eternal wisdom has decided is good for us today. That doesn't mean we don't try to better ourselves. It doesn't mean we don't try to educate and learn and grow and do better. But at the point in which we are today... At this day, we say, God, everything is working out according to your plan and your will. And it's good for me the way it is. That's contentment. 
Paul to the Philippians, who had just given to him a great gift to help him. Because he's in jail. He's not making money. The only way he gets anything is by people giving it to him. He writes back to them of God's provision. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, that now at length you've received, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here comes that, that verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, how we pull that out of context. I can do all things through God who strengthens me or Christ. Yeah, I can run a, a 7.5 yard dash. Are you kidding me? No, I can't do that in Christ. I don't care how often I pray. I'll never be able to do that. But I can learn to be content in whatever circumstance. And Paul was there. When Paul was growing up, he grew up in a very wealthy family. You can tell that because he became a Pharisee. And Pharisees were wealthy people. They had to be. That's part of what it was to, be, to even be called as a Pharisee. And yet at the same time, when he was in his itinerary ministry... He knew what it was to be beaten. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to go through travail and trials. And yet he said, in all of these situations, I can be content. Consider this. You're lying on the ground. You've just been stoned. You're almost close to death. And the first thing you say is, I'm content laying here almost dying. He'd learn the situation. He'd learn how to do that. And that's what we are called. That's what the uh, opposite side of the prohibition, the prescription of that commandment is all about. For instance, in the rich young ruler, the passage that we looked at, he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus goes back to him and says, why do you call me good? Only one is good, God. Which, absolutely true. In essence, what he's asking that rich young ruler is, are you calling me God? Am I God? What do I need to do to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes through that last tablet of the Ten Commandments, all six of them. And the rich young ruler looks at him and says, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, I, I'm, you know, I don't know if he did it physically, but inside I'm sure he's shaking his head going, are you kidding me? Obviously you didn't hear the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously you don't know that you may keep him outwardly, but not inwardly. So he says, this is a challenge. Go sell everything. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. And he did it because he had love and compassion on him. He was showing the depth of the rich young ruler's issues. And the rich young ruler turns away and he goes down crestfallen because he had many possessions. 
in essence, he coveted what he had, his bank account, his house, his prestige, all that came with being a rich, young ruler. And that leads Jesus then to turn to his disciples and says to them, verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And why not? The, the popular idea back then is you, if you were a rich child of God, you were especially blessed by God. I mean, he really adored you, loved you. He wanted you in his kingdom. He didn't care about anything. He, just, he obviously gave you all this money to show how lavishly he loves you. And you, were, you, you, had, you didn't even think about not making it into the kingdom of God or into heaven. And so Jesus turns that whole idea on its head. And this is, again, where another phrase comes up. Jesus looked at him and said, With man it is impossible, not, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Take your shovel, pull that out, and put it anywhere you want, right? No. And again, all things are possible with God. I'm going to run that 7.4 100-yard dash. It's possible. Christ in me, giving me the glory, giving me the glory and the power. No, no, no. In the context in which you always have to take it, he's talking about salvation. With God, it is possible. Not with your money, not with who you are, not with anything about you is what he's saying. And it, and doing that, I mean, the, the disciples are aghast. Peter began to say to him, and it had to be Peter, impetuous Peter. See, we've left everything and followed you. We've done exactly what you called that young, rich young ruler to do. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children or lands with, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In essence, realize it is only God who saves you. But when God saves you, he gives you what you need. If you've lost mothers and brothers and family because you've come to Christ, he will give them to you. I'm always amazed at this when, I, when we do traveling or, and we stop and we talk to somebody and they say they're Christians and you feel that bond between you. And all of a sudden there's a brother or a sister I've never known. And I've got family. We've got family all over the world. You put your... Put your hand or finger on a part of the world and there you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and that's part of your family. I mean, it's better than being American citizen. You can go to American citizen and go to the embassy and you're at home. 
but you can go anywhere in the world and you're at home in the kingdom of God. That's what he says. And that's why he says, don't covet. Don't be discontent. God will give you everything that you possibly need for this life now and life eternal. Not that that's thrown in as kind of a, an addition. He says, but in giving you what you need now, you will lead, you will be led into eternal life, life eternal. And with God, all things are possible. So the prescription of the 10th commandment is given by the catechism. That is that with our whole heart, the core of who we are, we continually hate sin and take pleasure in righteousness. Or as Calvin would put it, God desires us to be disposed to love others so that we banish all thoughts contrary to that love. So that whatever we conceive or attempt would be for our neighbor's good and advantage. Notice what he says. Whatever we do is for somebody else, not for us. How different is that than the culture in which we live? Have it my way. I want this because it will make me feel good. I do this for me. And we may embellish it a little bit. I do this for my family, for my job. But really, when you get down to it, it says, I really do it for me. And the others are corollaries. Not to put a damper on today, but don't you hear that sometimes in moms? I gave you birth. I wash your dishes. I wash your clothes. I cook for you day in and day out. And it's like, what do you ever do for me? I'm here. <laughs> Doesn't quite make it. But that's, that's just our sinful nature coming out. The beauty of a mother, and the, the, the way we almost idealize it today and this day, is that she does all those things, almost as if it were for no other reason than she wants to do it. And many times that's what's true. That's, what, that's how it works. But to be content is to say, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. And that's what, I, that's what they want. Love means sacrificing. And that goes across the board. Mothers, fathers, children with parents, parents with children, employees with employers, employers with employees. The sections in Ephesians and Colossians that talk about the household rules of how a household lives and reigns. It means sacrificing and giving up. It means to be content where you are so that you can give to other people. That's the key to it. So, you learn what Paul says, I have learned to be content in plenty and in want, joys and sorrows or whatever it might be. I have learned to be content and with Christ all things are possible, or he is able to give me that contentment in whatever situation I find myself. That's the 10th commandment. 
And then the catechism goes on to summarize when it talks at the next two questions on the Lord's Day 44. The first one is question 114. Can those who can be, are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer is no. But even the holiest men while in this life have only a small beginning of such obedience, yet so that with earnest purpose they begin to live not only ex according to some, but according to all the commandments. This is realistic good news. And the beauty of this, this answer is, can they keep it? No. Can they keep it perfectly? No. He tells us, it doesn't matter how long you've been at this, you will never keep these perfectly. Your salvation is not dependent upon keeping them perfectly. It's keeping upon the God with whom all things are possible. I want to show you from Romans 7 what this is like. Because here you have Paul. Paul who at the end of his life could say, I am the chief of all sinners. And we're going, what? I look at my life and I look at your life, Paul. And you, Paul, you say, you're the chief of all sinners? Then what's that make me? Well, at least I'm not as bad as Paul. <laughs> no, I just don't realize how bad I really am. Paul, seventh chapter. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Verse 7 in chapter 7. By no means, exclamation mark, poof. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said not, had not said, you shall not covet. Paul has ten commandments to pick from to show what he wants to show. Why do you think he picked the tenth? That's his problem. I covet. Sometimes I wonder, was Paul the rich young ruler? He's a Pharisee, rich, proud. He would have kept meticulously the law. Was he the one who ran up and said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, I'm, uh, I'm not going to go to the stake for that one. But it's just a wondering. Because God nails the rich young ruler on the 10th commandment. And Paul says, it's the 10th commandment that shows me I can't keep this perfectly. So in verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You know, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's not that sin wasn't there until the law was there, but the law showed him his sin, and all of a sudden it starts to take hold. It's like a person who's always been told you can lie, you can cheat, you can do all sorts of things, and all of a sudden they read the law, you shall not lie, and they're going, oh man, it wells up deep within them. You shall not covet. And it's like sin woke up and grabbed him. It became alive to him. It became deep and very deep. 
But the, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Notice, that's the second time he's, he's put that phrase. Hebrew way of emphasizing it. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Sin deceived me and through it killed me. So that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The inference is when the commandment is holy, I am not. Now this is when Paul is writing as a Christian. This is not his conversion before his conversion. He's saying covetedness is all around me. And I, I sometimes wonder, and again, I'm not going to go to the stake for this baby either. When he talks about to the Corinthians, I have a thorn in the flesh. And I prayed to God, take this away three times. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. We usually think it's his eyesight or epilepsy or some kind of disease. Maybe the thorn in his flesh was he was a person who coveted and he never. Or he always was battling against that. We take it physically. Maybe it's spiritually. Because what does sin do? And what does the law do? It makes us realize how much sin has seized us. And that it goes deep. Very, very, very deep within us. And it became alive. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Deeper than he ever known what it was. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Again, remember, he's talking about himself as a Christian. Sold under sin. It is so prevalent within me. It's as if it, is, uh, it owns me. But I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I do not want, it's no longer I who, it, who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He understands the depth. Have you ever come to that place in your life? You ever see the depth of a sin that you love? And it's agony. It makes you almost writhe in pain to see who you are, what you've done. And how it, how it affects your life. And it's simply the law being placed out there and awakening or shining a light upon the sin. And you see how beautiful the law is, but you see how dirty and filthy and corrupt the sin is. And how it permeates every area of life. So Paul goes on. Verse 21, so that I find, a, find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. 
For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. If you recognize the depth of your sin, and you may think, oh, surface, nothing to it. If you recognize the depth of your sin, you have only one response. Wretched man that I am. And you almost writhe in pain on the floor at how bad it is. That's one of the issues of, our, of the church today. We take sin so lightly. We cover it over so freely. And we don't see how horrible it is even within us as Christians. And then he goes on, the antidote. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forget the chapter division. They're all one, it's just one big paragraph put together. Haven't you ever seen that in yourself? I serve the Lord with my mind. I got it all up here. I memorize the Ten Commandments. I know the Lord's Prayer. I know what they say. But when push comes to shove, I serve the law of sin. Wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. There is no there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that's it, that we serve the Lord with our mind, but serve the law of sin with our flesh, then as question 15 asks, why then does God so strictly enjoy the ten, enjoin the Ten Commandments upon us since in this life no one can keep them? And I've given you partly the answer already. One, that as long as we live, we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature. And so the more earnestly seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness of Christ. And this is really good news for all of you who are new Christians. Who've only been doing this one, five, ten, forty years. You're still a new Christian. <laughs> but especially those who are just beginning in the Christian faith. You think you know your sinful condition. No, you don't. You don't see the pit in which you have lived. And in some ways, in some areas of life, the pit in which you do live. It is very, 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 I'm being Hebrew right now. Very, 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 very deep. And it has a hold on you like you've never known before. Some of you may have been in wrestling. And you know, if you, especially if you get an opponent who's bigger and stronger, you know, I mean, they wrap their arms around you and they hold you. And you go, I don't know how to get out of this. It's like Hulk Hogan with somebody. No, I, but you're trying to get out and you can't do it because the hold is so great. And that's exactly what sin is like with us. It wraps its arms around and holds us. And sometimes we get so used to it. We make excuses for it. But it's got us very deep. 
And we want to say, oh, I only do a few things wrong. And then the law comes and says, are you kidding me? Do you see how deep it really goes? And then on the other side, we recognize the vast, deep ocean of God's grace. That no matter how deep and how pervasive and how horrible sin is, God's grace is so much greater. I mean, you take this body, take me to this beach with all my sinfulness, and you put me into the ocean, I get swallowed up. That's exactly what God's grace is. It just swallows you up. When he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, what's the cross? It is finished. It's been paid for. Why did the temple fail? Why was it torn? The access to heaven is open through Christ. What is it for the ascension day? That Christ is now our God-man with the wounds on his hands and his side and his feet right before his father saying, I died for him. I died for her. They're mine. They're yours. Look at me. I've paid the penalty. You don't see their sin. That's what grace is all about. That's what we have to remember. It also is meant to give us a tender heart toward other people. Matthew 7. Judge lest you be judged. Why do you look at the speck in someone else's eye? The very little thing that you can see in them when you have this log in your own eye. How if you recognize the depth of your sin can you not be tender hearted to somebody else? And if you recognize how God has forgiven you and the grace of God has encompassed you how can you not be tender hearted and compassion to somebody else? Why do you think Jesus who probably only just met that rich young ruler hears him say I've kept all these things since I was young. He said loved him and had compassion on him because he knew what that rich young ruler didn't know how deep his sin was and yet how wonderful Jesus' grace could be. That's why you're tenderhearted toward people caught in sin. Because you know how prevailing it is in you. And the second part of that answer, that without ceasing, we diligently ask God for the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may be renewed more and more after the image of God, that we attain the goal of perfection after this life. Again, the good news is one day sin will cease. The bad, day, the bad news is you have to cease to have sin cease. You have to die physically for sin to cease. You're going to travail and go through all of this life battling sin. Some of it more horrendous than others. Some of it that you may not even get to know until later on in your life. It's like an onion. God peels off parts. He knows what you can take right now. 
But pretty soon he's going to start going real deep and he'll show you how bad it really is. But he says, the good news is, you will little by little be transformed. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice that. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed. How do you, how do you deal with sin? You first look at the glory of the Lord. And you keep your eyes focused on that. And the Spirit transforms you. He shows you the depth and he also shows you that way out and how much your Father, Heavenly Father, loves you. It will never be as complete as you want. And therefore, Paul would say to the Philippians in his second chapter, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a cooperative event that takes place between the two. And then later on in this, this uh, chapter, or in the book, in the third chapter, when he's talked about his own pedigree, and you almost can watch it go, look at me, look at all that I had. Pharisee of Pharisees. Two or three PhDs. I was, I was moving toward the top until I came to know Christ and I saw the wretchedness of all my own righteousness and needed his. And then he says to the Philippians, not that I've already obtained this, that is a resurrection from the dead or that from a freedom from sin or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You may have not made it yet, but you press on. You work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you doing his will. That is why you study the Ten Commandments. That is why when we've gone through the commandments, I've looked at both the problem as well as the prescription. That's why over and over again I will go back and say, look at yourself. Why? Because you've got to see the depth of your sin before you really appreciate not only what sin is, but what the cross and resurrection is all about. And that's why God uses the law. So we finish with the Ten Commandments. I hope that you mark your Bible. Well, it works better if you have paper instead of an electronic Bible. I'm sorry, it just works out every way. That you have that page dog-eared. And you go back and you read them. And you use those as your confession every day. Where have I failed you in this? And you confess your sins and repent. And discover God's forgiveness. That brings us to the final part of our working phrase. 
of the Ten Commandments. The sovereign Savior creates worshipers who grow as disciples, who treat him with all reverence and respect as they gather to worship, living under God's authority, caring for others, remaining chaste, being generous, telling the truth, all with contentment. All with contentment. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that there's never a trip that we take in this life that you have not given to us, provided for us, directed us to do so for your glory, for our benefit. We continue to move through the Ten Commandments. May we continue to do so in our own lives, day by day, week by week. May we recognize not only how deep our sin goes, but how great your grace is and how wonderful you have served us. Thank you for the Spirit who helps to transform us from one degree of glory to the next as we gaze upon Jesus. Thank you for your word that is a light unto our feet and a lamp to us. Thank you for your love for us that will not let us go, no matter how deep we have fallen. For you are a God who loves to watch over, protect, guide your people through travail and through joy. For the sake of your glory and your honor and our witness to others of the greatness of your grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.